Welcome to Learning Through Math, the podcast. I'm Laura at I Teach the Why. I'm Karina at Mrs. Cousins 5. Our mission is to inspire ourselves and others to keep learning and improving with passion. And hugs. You can find us at learningthroughmath.com and on Twitter at Laura and Karina. Come and join us on this journey of learning. Thanks for joining us. We are recording this in November of 2021. And welcome to episode 58, Learning About the Five Practices. I want to give a shout out to one of our book club members who joined us for Mathematical Mindsets, our book study that we had most recently, and it's Jessica Fries. She is an assistant principal in the Flagler Beach area, and we just wanted to say thank you to an administrator for joining us, to wanting to continue her learning, even though she's, quote, out of the classroom. She wants to make sure that she's up on the latest and greatest. So, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. We were so happy. And, Laura, I know you have a great reflection for us this week. I Go ahead and share this amazing quote you found. Well, Brian Bouchard is someone who I have been following for a while. He's the creator of Numberless Word Problems. And I saw this tweet on Wednesday, and I just, I absolutely loved it. I kept nodding my head while I was reading it. This is what he said. If you don't already, spend some time floating around chatting with kids while they work, even if it's just computation problems. If you just grade the finished product, you're only getting the tiniest of glimpses into their mathematical thinking. Woo! Mic drop. Because this is everything we've been talking about with building thinking classrooms with that triangle where product is just one vertex and you've got observation and conversation as the other two vertices. So I, I thank you, Brian, for putting that out there. And I definitely want to spread that quote that you have around the internet. And Karina, I know you have a great story for good news this week. As you know, I've been able to do building thinking classroom tasks. I'm so excited that I've been able to do that, you know, now that uh, COVID hasn't been as intense over here. Mm -hmm. And on Friday, I had a escape room planned. And let me tell you, for the last year and a half, kids, when I say, oh, we're doing an escape room, they get so excited Mm -hmm. about working together. And, you know, sometimes they would do it on a Google Meet and they would work together, but they they would work together. All right. I present this to my students. I'm like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're doing an escape room. And First of all, there were moans. What? <laughs> what is happening? Why Why are you? What's wrong? And they're like, we're not doing the white books? I'm like, no, because we're doing an escape room. And they were like, oh, we want the white books. Can we do the white books instead? And I said, no, because that's not what I have planned. So pick a partner and and go go work on this escape room. And then they're like, wait, we're not doing random groups either? <laughs> I said, no, you're picking your own partner. Would you just pick a partner? And they were, they like did not, they, they begged me to, to do random groups at least. And I'm, I, I, I was like, no, that's not, that's, it's not happening today. <laughs> but did it? They totally, no, I, no, they, I mean, some of them still mixed it up. Oh, and then this one student said, 
but how will we hear what other people are thinking if we don't if we aren't in random groups and I'm like oh god what have, I've created monsters <laughs> but we're going to call them friendly monsters because that's exactly yeah. what, what we want kids to be thinking and doing I mean Yay. I'm thr- I really am thrilled I'm thrilled but I just thought it was so funny that they I mean, what what they've gotten used to just in like a week uh it, it's just it's awesome it's it really is it's awesome it makes that me very excited it's amazing wow listeners we have another super treat for you we have our is it our fourth guest it is our fourth guest it is tony chippa and i want to tell our listeners that I met Tony in somewhere in the range of 2014 at the FCTM conference. She came into my session that my friend Robin and I presented number talks. And you know, when you just see someone and you just want to be their friend? Well, (laughs) Tony is one of those people that I just felt like I connected with and wanted to be friends with her. So fast forward to June of 2021. Tony is now presenting number talks at the FCTM conference and I got to go in and sit on her session. So I kind of felt like the, the mama bird trained the baby bird and the baby bird flew off and did her own thing and then came back to the nest and did it even better than what the mama bird taught her because I learned some things that I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. I didn't think about that. Yay. And then over the summer, we got together and was it a three or four hour lunch? Something like that. We spent a lot of time together solving all the world's mathematical problems. (laughs) Yes, we did. (laughs) So Tony, tell everyone a little bit more than my introduction about you. I am an instructional coach at a K-6 elementary school. I support science and math teachers and students. Um, I'm in my 16th year of education. Woohoo! Yes. And I am hopeful that I will reach 30. (laughs) (laughs) You and I both. Well, you know what? It's going to be there before you know it. It really is. (laughs) But I enjoy learning about student learning and thinking, and I appreciate the opportunities that you all share with your listeners and challenges that you have us work on. I appreciate that. We are thrilled that you are here for sure. And I I already know we're going to have you back for another episode, but on this episode, we are going to have a deep conversation about the five practices for orchestrating productive mathematics discussions. And this was a book um, published by NCTM by Smith and Stein a few, gosh, more than a few years ago, hasn't it been? 2011, (gasps) 10 years ago, I got this book. Wow. That time flew. All right, take it away. So you say 10 years ago, but I am still hearing the five practices come up in conversations. When I was at the recent FCTM conference, every presenter at FCTM referenced the five practices. And there was something about their presentation that um, lent itself to orchestrating the five practices. So Though it was published in 2010, there's so many aspects to it that we're mastering. It is 
important to continue the practice. And I do believe that it is an effective practice uh, for multiple reasons. But I think uh, for today's purposes, we're just going to highlight the fact that it helps students advance their thinking, uh, but most importantly, it helps teachers access their thinking. I agree with you 100% on all of that. Do you want to tell the listeners about the five practices? Yes. And I also want to know what made you want to discuss this on today's episode? I think the reason I wanted to discuss it is because I believe that it is an, an important framework for teaching. I believe it's an easy framework to implement. And I'm hoping that since we're in the middle of a textbook adoption in the state of Florida, teachers will look for opportunities to support implementing the five practices because not all textbooks do a good job of that. So we're looking for um, rich, open tasks to allow students these opportunities. Okay. Why don't you tell the listeners now about the five practices? The five practices are one, anticipate, two, monitor, three, select, four, sequence, and five, connect. So I mentioned that this is a framework. It can be utilized with uh, contextual problems. It can be utilized with computational problems. What I like to do is, in step one, anticipate all of the strategies that I know from experience with my students and from experience in past years, anticipate strategies that they're going to use. One way that helps me anticipate these strategies, because there is always going to be a strategy that pops up that you didn't anticipate, I like to uh, decontextualize the word problem. So even though it might appear as if it is a straightforward division problem, we know that kids might use subtraction to solve division. They might use repeated addition to solve division. They might use multiplication. So refraining from saying or asking what operation are we going to use, let them use the operation that they feel is going to help them solve this problem. Yeah, I want to I want to just jump in right there because I want to give an example. This just happened this week. We're in the middle of our decimal division unit. And our, the problem that I posed was if a student has a dollar and 20 cents to purchase erasers and each eraser is 20 cents, how many erasers can they purchase? The kids solved it by some of them skip counting. And I said, you see, like we have all of these grades. You can solve this by adding, by subtracting, by multiplying, or even by using division. Even though this was supposed to be a division problem, you could solve it any way you'd like. You could even just draw a picture and you would find the answer. If your picture is good enough, you'll be able to find that answer. So I love that you brought that up. And I think that that's so important that we keep it open for kids to choose what operation and what model they're going to use, not restrict them and pigeonhole them into, you must use this because we're dividing right now. So you have to use division. And I'm just going to say one further thing about that. I'm hoping with our next new Florida assessment, since, you know, now it just says a standard algorithm or whatnot, that it's not going to be pigeonholed you know, you have to use division in, in this division problem to let them use the strategy that they want. That would be amazing. 
So with that, to kind of piggyback on what Karina was saying, you're also building their confidence, helping them realize that, yes, I have knowledge and I have ways to access this problem, even though someone else may be accessing it differently. Just because, oh, wait a minute, they're doing division and I'm doing subtraction. Am I wrong? No, I know that everyone has different tools. They're all going to access this in a different way. And I have confidence that I can too. Just the anticipating that there's going to be multiple strategies, being able to look over a kid's shoulder while they're working and being able to understand what they're doing is helpful. But like I said, they're going to come up with strategies that we didn't anticipate and and that's okay. But what we want to also anticipate is which strategies are going to advance students' thinking along the lines of the focus of the lesson. So if the focus of the lesson is using division strategies, we want to look for division strategies. And I'm going to stop there with the anticipate. So the next step, too, is to monitor students' thinking. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're just monitoring, walking around, looking at their work. We're looking for, again, just the strategies that we anticipated, trying to make sense of their thinking, looking for, again, those strategies that are going to advance their thinking that are along the lines of the goal of the lesson. So if I see someone make a mistake, I'm not going to intervene. I'm going to let them continue to struggle through it. I'm going to allow them time to persevere. If students are have a solution, um, but I see that other students haven't finished, I'm going to challenge them to see if they can solve it in another way, um, just because I want to allow time for everyone to independently solve this problem. And I'm simply walking around and observing student thinking. Are you taking notes as this is happening? So that's a good question. And that's a question that I think the answer is different for all teachers. It's preference. You can take notes. I know some teachers will take notes on post-its. When I first started doing this, I would take notes on the whiteboard for myself, but then I noticed the kids could see that. So they they knew, uh, they had an idea of what was happening next when I did that. What I do, and I'm fortunate enough that we're in like an Apple district. So I have my iPhone and I can take pictures of student work and I can then airplay it. So I'm taking pictures of student work, and that's kind of my notes. In a later step, and I'll talk about it more, I'll shuffle through my photos. And so that's kind of my my note, is I, I take pictures with my phone. But again, there the teacher can have a recording device where they have those strategies that they've anticipated, and they can write student names down next to the students who are using specific strategies. And then, again, the post-it note just to have an idea of what strategies are being used and which students are using which strategies. But also you might have a question about a strategy and during the monitoring phase, we're not going to ask it, but in the next step, you might ask those questions or listen for um, student discussion to see if those questions get answered. So monitoring, there is no talking to students. I don't. I I like to allow them the time to persevere um, and to put their thinking on paper or whiteboard or uh, some teachers use iPads yep. for note taking. Okay. I actually have a first grade teacher that does that. I was pretty impressed. She was, wow. She uses the Math Learning Center Number Frames app and it was really neat. I was in her room last year or last week she airplayed. The students airplayed from their iPads. 
Wow. Yes. I can't wait to hear the next part because I know what I do with the selecting and sequencing phases, that they kind of intertwine with each other. But go ahead and tell the listeners about that. You're right. Step three and step four, select and sequence, they go hand in hand. Because what I, what we're doing is we're selecting the strategies that we want the whole group to have access to. While we are selecting these strategies, we're thinking to ourselves, well, how do they build on each other? Because when we share them, we want to share them in an order that develops and advances students' thinking. So after students have worked independently, I allow time for them to turn to a partner and discuss their strategy. And so I'm walking around and listening to them share their thinking. Sometimes when I see their work on paper, it's actually different when they explain to their partner what they did. And it's it's not what I anticipated. I definitely allow for that turn and talk so that I can hear what they're going to tell their partner because I, I want to make sure that I know what they're going to tell the rest of the class. I want to make sure that it's accessible to all students or most students and that their representation makes mathematical sense. So they're talking with their neighbors about their strategy. They're asking questions of each other because the goal is for them to make sense of their partner's strategy. I have now an idea in my mind of the, typically I share three strategies in order of sophistication. Now, again, I'm not going to select a strategy that may appear to be the most efficient if I don't feel as if all students have access to it. I want to make sure that, the, like I said, the majority of my kids have access to these strategies. So I'll share a strategy. And so this is the, the sequencing. Again, I typically do it in order of sophistication. The first strategy I share, all students will have access to it. Sometimes I will share it. Sometimes I'll have the student share and I scribe. Sometimes I have the student share what they scribed. It all depends on if all of my students are going to have access to it. So sometimes the way that they represent their thinking, I might want the whole class to see it on a number line. Or sometimes the, re the way that they represent their thinking, if it's like partial products, I might decide that I, I want to show that on an area model versus... Uh, the repeated addition or the multiple equations. It all depends on what the goal of the lesson is. So I've selected the examples that I want to share. I've sequenced them in an order of sophistication. And so what I do in step five is I connect them. And the way that I connect them is not to tell the students how they're connected, but to ask the students how are they connected. So I might say, what is similar about these two strategies? Or what do you notice is different? But I always ask questions about each of the strategies that are shared so that students can start to make sense of them, but ultimately so that they can advance their thinking. So this next strategy that I shared, it might not have been your strategy, but you see too, how is the strategy similar to your strategy? Oh, they subtracted groups of 100 instead of groups of 10. I could have, I could have done that. That might be a strategy that they choose to use later. But the, the connecting piece is the piece where you're going to advance student thinking. That kind of sounds exactly like the consolidation part of thinking classrooms. Yeah. I mean, everything, everything that you said, I, I just, it relates right back to 
building thinking classrooms. What I haven't mentioned yet about this is it's 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 a it's a routine. I did say that it is a framework, mm-hmm. but it is it's predictable. So the kids know the framework. They know what you're going to ask of them. So they're not learning a new structure. They're only really learning new content. And so that's the nice thing about using this predictable framework. And I I kind of bring that up because sometimes teachers will ask, well, how often should I do this? And and how long is this going to take? I asked Candace, because she is a fourth grade teacher at my school who does this. And I, I, I asked her, you know, how would you answer these questions? And she believes that it should be implemented daily. And she believes that it is a routine that helps students develop a deeper understanding of math. She's really observed that having implemented this um, for the past two years. When you do it um, consistently, and the kids do it consistently. They they know the routine, you know the routine, so it does move a lot quicker. And it depends on the content as well. But it's time well invested. Mm-hmm. That was that was you know her perspective was that it, it's worth doing the routine daily. One thing that struck a chord with me was actually when you talked about it in the anticipating section was not only letting the students use the operation that they want to use, but it really all comes back to teachers planning what's going to be happening or what they think is going to be happening with their students' thinking. Because that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to uncover and listen for what the students are saying. No more spoon-feeding, right? This is not the I do, we do, you do of days past we're done with that. That didn't work <laughs> when we were students. It doesn't work now. It's very intentional for teachers to do. And they have to know the math. They ha- And they have to be able to trust, you know, their gut, right? Because if a student starts going off the rails with their thinking, that's why the routine of monitoring, selecting, sequencing is there in the middle so that a student won't go off the rails and bring you to a place where you're like, what that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Right. You know who you're going to call on and what they're going to say and share to keep it focused to the goal of the lesson. Another thing, because you had mentioned the, the spoon feeding and Candace did kind of comment on that. And she said that students are just going through the motions and they can replicate a procedure for that week. But the problem with that is retention. Yeah. Yep. But also, I've been thinking about this lately. When they go next year to a different teacher who has a different way of doing things, now they have to unlearn the expectation from the year prior and relearn a new routine or strategy. And so we wonder why it doesn't stick. Why are they not retaining? Allowing them to make sense of math, allowing them to feel confident that they have strategies to be successful is really helping build problem solvers in math and in in life. Mm -hmm. 
Have you been able to implement this throughout your whole school? Like, are are all of your teachers doing this? They're all on board? So that is a great question. And I will say that the textbook that we have does have a routine that is very similar to the five practices. So it does allow um, for students to have open-ended, rich tasks. I do have teachers at my school who have implemented the five practices. And Laura, I don't know if I told you this. I I feel like this would be like a a text you would get during the day, but I was pulled to sub and I'm reading the lesson plans and the five practices were in the sub plans. Wow. I was thinking this is awesome. (laughs) She tells the sub, give them the problem, (laughs) let them solve it on their own let them share. And then she's telling the sub to pick a few strategies. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but that's obvious that she's doing that on the regular. Right. And her expectation is that the sub will too. Yeah. Yes. That's amazing. And I will tell you another um, time I was in a classroom. I was doing small group and we read the word problem together. And I asked, this is bad. I asked what equation represents the situation, which it was grade five. And so, yes, there are equations that represent the situation. And there could be multiple equations. Of course. But she said to me, wait a minute, we didn't make sense of the story yet. You didn't ask me, what is the problem about? What are we trying to find out? What is the important information? So, yeah, that's something that we haven't talked about. And that's just the making sense of the the problem before you have them independently work. Um, is because you don't want them to have this idea about the problem and then do it wrong because it's multi-step and they only got the first step. You want to make sure that you have that time built in where you're making sense of the problem before. That's even before they even go off and solve it however you want them to, whether it's independently, partners, random groups, at white books, at their desk. What it sounds like to me is that it's not just a framework that can be used as a whole group. It can also be used in a small group setting. Yes, it can. I think what I've found is the the selecting and sequencing and connecting is is better whole group. Right. Uh, because you have access to multiple strategies. Right. right. Um, varying strategies in, you know, complexity and sometimes in small group it's it's limiting. Yeah. But what you what you can do in small group is allow that independent practice um, and let them solve on their own. Because um, another thing during that monitoring stage, and we hadn't talked about it yet, is yes, building perseverance, but also unlearning the learned helplessness. Ooh. So oh, yeah. All teachers, gen ed, ESE support facilitation, they all have the expectation that I'm going to ask you a question, we're going to make sense of it, and then you're going to, you're going to start solving it. Right. You're going to show me what you know, because I know you know a lot, but you're going to show me how you would access or approach this problem. You could always take a page out of Julie Dixon's book and say... I saw a kid solve it like this last year, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> One of our little white lies that we <laughs> spread, which is fine. Yes. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. Yes. 
Um, it's nice with the teachers who departmentalize because they can say, in my first period, someone did this or exactly yesterday in second period or. Yeah. Well, you could say, I once saw someone do this and that someone could have happened to have been you, right? <laughs> yeah, that works. Awesome. Do you have any final thoughts, Tony, that you want to share? So I'm looking over here at my notes and I hadn't mentioned yet Zach Champagne's blog um, titled Learning to Listen and Listening to Learn. And so in it, he just kind of gives some strategies for being a better listener and so some of those are, one, get away from the board. Yeah. So during the five practices, you're really not up at the board. And even in the connect, if the students are representing their thinking, you're not You're not uh, by the board. Allow for more student talk. So a lot of the um, partner talk, turn and talk to a neighbor. I saw um, someone says, turn and talk to a neighbor, I'm going to eavesdrop. And I think it's important to let them know that you're going to eavesdrop. Because you don't want them talking to you. They're talking right. to their partner. Right. And you're walking around and eavesdropping on the conversation. And then just genuinely asking questions that you don't know the answer to. And making them feel like you you really want to know what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Those are a few tips from that blog. Awesome. And I know listening to learn is, is Marilyn Burns' big initiative right now. Like that's that's what she's really been uh, promoting, just listening to students and doing like K through five math interviews, which is like going back to the math running record where you actually yep. listen to their thinking, right? And again, Laura, it's, it goes back to what we've talked about, about what the true meaning of assess really means. And to assess means to sit next sit to. Beside, right? Yeah. So listen, sit next to kids and listen to what they're saying and how they're thinking. Because that gives us so much more insight than, you know, past practices that we've done. Yes. And listeners, I just want to let you know that Tony went ahead and put a whole bunch of show notes together for us, which I, I can't say thank you enough. And some of the things that she put on there we haven't discussed. So definitely go into the show notes and see what else is there. There was one short video that I watched right before we started. And I was like, Ooh, I really like that one. Listeners, we have a great challenge for you this week. We want you to do at least one of the five practices. How about the anticipating where you're going to try and come up with all the different strategies that your students might develop and practice listening to a discussion among students or go next to a kid and just ask them, what's going on here in your, on your paper, or in your brain? We think that that's going to change your whole world if you've never done that before. Totally. And Tony, we just want to say thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. I've learned lots. Thank you for inviting me. I have enjoyed our time learning together. Thanks for joining us. We'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. We invite you to join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag LearningThroughMath. We'd love to hear your feedback. Make sure to tag us at Laura and Karina. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. To you too.